Open with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 as we continue in our study of this discourse, which we will end this morning. You know, life, our life is full of choices. Our life is full of decisions. In fact, a large part of our life today is the result of the choices that we have made in the past. In fact, the decisions today will likewise affect our future tomorrow. There are times when making certain decisions is not easy, especially if our principles in life are involved. In these moments, we often make compromises and we choose what is convenient at the moment rather than having this long-term, big-picture, eternal perspective. Rather than fight for what is right, we often opt to stay in our comfort zone to protect ourselves, to protect our reputation. When faced with a choice between God and worldly things, many of us choose the latter. In the closing section here of Matthew chapter 10, Jesus continues to encourage and to instruct and and exhort his disciples to make decisions in light of the big picture. Make decisions in light of the big picture in view of eternity. Not to be just prisoners of the moment, choosing convenience over hardships, preserving personal relationship and this temporary peace at the expense of their very souls. Jesus desires to correct their misunderstanding or their misconceptions about this mission that they were about to go on. If, if the disciples missed this point earlier, then he is as clear as it gets here in these closing verses of chapter 10. Jesus is speaking so clearly. He says, choose to give me your absolute priority in your life. And in the end, you will win. Choose now to give Christ your life. And in the end, you will become victorious. If you're going to be a faithful disciple of my, Jesus says, I want to have number one priority. Number one place in your life. And when that is true, then you will go for Jesus all out, regardless of the consequences here in this life. So the big thought, the big idea here in verses 34 through verse 42 through the end of this chapter is our ultimate love and loyalty belong to Jesus above our family and even self. Our ultimate loyalty belongs to Christ above our family and self. I want us to read, begin with verse 32 of chapter 10, and we will study through the remainder of this chapter. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and the daughter against her mother 
and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And the man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. He who receives me and he who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of the prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. I want us to look at this chapter, the remainder of this chapter, and see three exhortation that Jesus gives to us and to his disciples originally. Three exhortations to give Christ absolute priority in our lives as his disciples on the mission. Three exhortation. Number one, love Christ above everyone in view of the purpose of his coming. There's an exhortation and a motivation. I want us to see first the exhortation in verses 30, uh, 34 through 37. Love Christ above everyone in view of the purpose of his coming. What is the purpose of his coming? If you asked any Jew who was expecting the Messiah at this time that Jesus is writing, and you asked them, what is the purpose of Messiah's coming? And they would all tell you, his, the purpose of his coming is to bring peace. We are living under tyranny right now. Roman tyranny. We need peace that only Messiah brings. They read passages like Isaiah 9, 7, that said, where there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Verse earlier in Isaiah 9, 6, Jesus, the Messiah, he is referred to as the Prince of Peace. In fact, when when the angels, remember, they rip, tear apart the heaven when Jesus was born. What song were they singing? Luke 2.14 tells us they were singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Right before his crucifixion, Jesus gathers together the 12 or the 11 and, and he tells them, he tries to encourage them. He says, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go. But verse uh, John 14, 26, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Very similar, right, exhortation as is here. Do not fear earlier on. Do not fear. Do not fear. And then he says there, do not fear. I give you my peace. 
Earlier on, if you remember in, in Matthew, in, ver, in chapter 9, Jesus had already indicated the purpose of his coming. Jesus, in Matthew 9, verses 12 and 13, he's dining with tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees, they, they have a problem with that. Why is he, why is this Messiah dining with the, the unclean folks? And Jesus says to them this in 12 and 13, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Here's the purpose of my coming. I came to call the right, oh, the sinners, not the righteous. And later on in Matthew 11, he will, if just flip with me to Matthew 11, in verse 28, he will look at the crowds and he say, come, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So, so Jesus, the Prince of Peace, came to call sinners and to give them rest. At least this is what we know of up until this point in Matthew. And now Jesus, in verse 34, seems to contradict what he previously said. Do not think I came to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. Is there a contradiction? No, Jesus, Jesus can't contradict himself. He is the Prince of Peace. He did come to save sinners and he did come to give them rest. But here is the reality that he's trying to emphasize in this very text. Because Jesus came to bring an exclusive message of salvation, the world will be divided over him. The world will be divided over him. Listen, Jesus comes up and he says, I am not one way of many. What does he say? I am the way. I am the way. Jesus is not just one of many saviors, one of many options. Jesus is the only peace bearer. You don't have peace outside of Christ. And the peace that he brings is not primarily political. It is the peace that overcomes sin and restores your relationship to holy God. That's the peace that he brings. And that, friends, means war. That means hostility. That means conflict. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword, a sword, Obviously, he's not referring to a literal physical sword, but it is a symbol for a conflict, symbol of conflict. Here's the reality. Even though the message of Christ is received by some, it is not received by all. Even though you love God's truth, friend, maybe you're sitting here and you love the gospel, and I hope that we all love the gospel, at the very same time we can say that not everybody loves the gospel. Not everybody loves Christ. Christ's ministry was so confrontational that he either attracted people to himself or he repelled them, like this magnet on opposite sides, right? You either attract people, some get attracted, and some get expelled, repelled by Christ. No, we're not coming with you. We hate you and all those who associate with you. Notice that 
Jesus is not directly initiating this conflict or warfare. He is simply addressing the response of those who will reject him. So he says his gospel is, is so radical, it is so exclusive that this truth about Jesus Christ will divide even the most intimate of human relationships. He says, my coming will result, in verse 35, a man being set against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And the man's enemies will be the members of his own household, not outside of the house, inside of his own house. Fathers were the heads of households to whom full loyalty was owed. There was no one person more supreme and more authoritative than the father in the house. You had to give him all honor and all loyalty. Mothers were heads of the female sections of the household, possessing great authority as well. When a bride would marry into the family, it was expected of her to assume her role now as a member of the husband's family, looking towards her mother-in-law for, for guidance and for direction. And Jesus says, those who profess me, those who love me, they might have to face these divisions. You probably noticed the, the difference in format. Look at verse 34 or 35 and 36 in your Bibles, right? Jesus here actually quotes Micah chapter seven, verse six, in which the prophet at that, in that context, he describes the godlessness of Israel during his time. Jesus here, he takes this verse and he quotes it not as fulfillment, but because his situation of rejection parallels that of Israel. So he takes this verse, he quotes it, and he says, here's what's happening right now, and here's what's about to happen even more once I die and resurrect and leave. So Jesus says there will be families where one member believes and the other rejects. In these families, there will be great hostility and discord because of me. Christ will be the issue. And remember the culture and the, the religion that Jesus is addressing here. He is speaking directly to the Jews. He's addressing the religion of Judaism at this very moment. And he says, it is not going to be easy. All of your households, all of your families who are steeped in religion, in Judaism, once one member believes in Christ, they will inevitably turn their back on the family religion and they will suffer for it. There will be a husband who believes and the wife will say, forget you. There will be a wife who believes and will be booted out because of her faith in Christ. And Jesus says, you, you, you got to choose me. Friends, just studying this, this passage here, I'm reminded of what a blessing it is for families where all the members love and welcome Jesus Christ. What a blessing it is. Many families around the world are suffering this very same 
cause right now. Just like many are being put to death, many families have lost their spouses, their children, their parents because of this very issue. The issue is Christ and our allegiance to him. Friends, here is, here is the thing. Devotion to Christ will result in division with the world. It has to. Allegiance to Christ will result in alienation from the world. And so Jesus reminds the 12 that he is worthy of their ultimate devotion. If we love anyone more than Christ, Jesus here says in verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Discipleship to Christ may bring a conflict of loyalties. And when it does, friends, following and loving Jesus must take precedence over natural love for your family. He says, if anyone loves, this term here, love, phileo, not agape, he doesn't use that term, but this ongoing, right, present, ongoing, natural affection for someone else. We have those. We have those for unbelievers. We have those for our family members. Jesus says, if, you're, if you love your parents or children more than me, you are not worthy of me. In other words, you are not the, the right sort to be my disciple. You are not worthy of me. What's he saying here? Anyone who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He's not saying that we ought to hate or we ought to dislike our family. He is making it abundantly clear that he is worthy of utmost devotion and love. He's not calling us to have unloving attitudes. You know, some people, they they pluck this text out of this context and they say, well, you know, I can just, in the name of Christianity, I can treat, you know, my my parents and uh, any way I want or my children. No, this is not a call to hate. This is not a call to dishonor. This is not a call to disunity. This is a call to be willing to choose him first in every situation where you, where where the conflict is between Jesus or your family member. Who are you going to honor when the choice is made or is presented to you to choose honoring Jesus or to preserve this relationship? Who are you going to choose? Honor your father and mother as the fifth commandment teaches but seek to honor Christ above your father and mother. This is what this text says. I mean, we've already seen, right? In Matthew chapter eight, verse 21, an example of the would-be disciple who hesitated to follow Christ because he was unwilling to sacrifice his parents' religion or, or his family inheritance. He says, Jesus, I will follow you, but first let me do this. I will follow after you, but first I have family obligations. And Jesus warned him then, and he reminds his disciples of this truth this very moment before he sends them out. So the call for us, beloved, is to love Jesus above all, even the closest of our family ties, but the question is why? Why? What is the motivation to love Christ and and to put him first? in view 
as I said, of the purpose of his coming. What will motivate us to love Jesus above all? Even above our closest family, if they reject us? Friends, the only motivation to love Christ, the only motivation to obey Christ, to do that which he desires is his love for us. That's it. There's no, there's no greater, there's no superior motivation. That's why when you read passages like the, the most famous verse, right? John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. His love is the motivation, right? His love motivated him to send his son so that his son would die. And now when we are regenerated, we look at that love and that love motivates us. Paul says in Ephesians chapter five, verse two, he says, friends, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you. He came in order to give himself up for you out of love. Therefore, he deserves our supreme affection. He deserves our primary devotion. Very end in Revelation chapter one, Last book of the Bible, John writes, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, be glory and dominion forever and ever. What is the motivation to love him above all, above our parents, above our children? What is that motivation? It is his love for us. That's it. Church, Christ is worthy of our all Because he gave up himself. His love for us is the only motivation to supremely love him. I don't know if you, uh, you know, oftentimes when we we talk about marriage and specifically divorce, um, we go to passages like 1 Corinthians 7. And in 1 Corinthians 7, if you read that passage just in light of this context, man, it's, it has a different sense to it. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul discusses this very issue, right, um, in the context of marriage. In the case, he says, where one spouse is a believer and the other one is not. And if that unbelieving spouse turns around and tells the believers, believing spouses, like, you love your Jesus, and I don't like the fact that you love your Jesus, I am out I'm gone. Paul says, you got to let her go. For the love of Christ, because you love Christ more than any person in the world. You got to let them go. This is an amazing testimony of one who is committed to love Christ. Does he hate others? No, he loves them, but the supreme affection is reserved for Jesus Christ. And when someone gives you the choice, you're gonna love me or you're gonna love your Lord and I am gonna determine what it means to love me, not Jesus, then friends, you gotta choose to love the Lord in his definition of love. Love Christ above everyone in view of the purpose of his coming. Love Christ above all in view of his sacrificial love for you. Meditate on his love. Rehearse the gospel so that no other love would come to rival his love for 
you. But the second thing that we learn here, go back to Matthew chapter 10 in verses 38 and 39 is this. Deny everything for Christ in view of the promise of eternal life. Not only love Christ above everyone, but the negative side is you deny everything for Christ in view of the promise of eternal life. Not only should we should no person take priority over Christ. No thing should take first place over Christ. Look what he says in verse 38. And he who does not take up his cross. Friends, when we look at the cross right now as, as 21st century right, believers who probably read into Matthew and into Mark and Luke and John, and we know what the cross means. Cross, every time cross is mentioned, crucifixion. Jesus on the cross, right? That's what what we're thinking. But put yourself here in Matthew 10 without having 11, 12, 13, and, and the rest of it, right? When Jesus addresses them, his original, even his disciples, they have no understanding. They're not thinking about Christ's redemptive work the way we do. And yet they're very familiar with crucifixion. They know exactly what Christ means or cross means. Before Jesus' time, there, there was a Jewish insurrection against Rome by this zealot named Judas. After stopping the insurrection, the Roman general Varus ordered over 2,000 Jews to be crucified to make a point. You don't cause any insurrection against Rome. Otherwise, here is the payment. And it is said that at that time, the crosses lined the roads of Galilee from one end to the next. 2,000 crosses. And when people saw a cross, they knew exactly what it meant. They had to be willing to die. The cross meant humiliation. Cross meant shame. Cross ultimately meant ultimate death. Jesus says, take up your cross. You know what that means? Those who take up their cross, they're only going one way. (laughs) They're only going one direction. They're not taking up their cross and saying to their families, you know, I'll see you in a few. No. They're going to the place outside of the city where they will be crucified. They're going to their death. And that is exactly what Jesus is saying. Take up and follow me. If you're not ready to give up your life in a humiliating fashion for the sake of the kingdom of God, you are not worthy to be my disciple. Jesus, friends, is not looking for lukewarm followers, for uncommitted participants in the kingdom. Following Jesus isn't like changing, I don't know, political affiliation or parties. Or picking a new hobby. You know, I used to enjoy it, but forget it. Now I, I have a little bit more money so I can enjoy a new hobby now. No, that's, that's not what, it's, what the call is. The call is to deny yourself and your priorities and choose the priorities of your master. Once again, this applies to everything in our life. To every relationship, to every possession, to every circumstance, in every conduct, Nothing is to rival our devotion to Jesus Christ. For those of you who are young here, young Christians, you're, you're, you live at a, at a time where peer pressure 
among students is, is probably the greatest it's ever been. And how would you apply this text? Think about it. Ask yourself, have you ever been tempted to downplay your Christian faith in order to be included, in order to be considered part of the cool group? I mean, most of us, we faced the same temptations when, when we were students. What, what does it cause you to do? But you know, it doesn't stop there. It's not just a teenage thing. Peer pressure goes on for the rest of your life. There are always going to be things that tempt us to compromise our loyalty to Jesus Christ. And Christ is saying it here that there is nothing in this life that is more important than he is. Some friends, will lose their occupation like Matthew did. Remember Matthew in chapter eight? He gave up what? He gave up a really nice income source, source of income. Zacchaeus, remember what Zacchaeus did? Why did he have to give it all up? Because he met Jesus. And meeting Jesus means giving this up. Somebody might have to give up their reputation like Paul did. Remember, we just read, Dan read before at the beginning of the service, right? For the sake, for the value of knowing Christ, I have suffered the loss of all things, Paul says. Some will have to give up their lives, very lives, like Stephen did in, in Acts. So Jesus says, deny everything for Christ. Why? In view of the promise of eternal life. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Remember, Jesus had just told them that they got to be ready to die. What he says here is, if you try to preserve your physical life, you will lose out eternally. In other words, if, if you live your life on your own terms, you will lose your life in the ultimate sense. If you live this life for you, when this life is all about you, what will you find at the final judgment? If all you're concerned about is, is what you get, how you look, you know, what you make, And then you sprinkle Jesus a little bit here and there. You know, you come to church, you bring a Bible with you, you occasionally sing. What do you think the final outcome would be? Jesus warns, already warned in in Matthew chapter 7, that to some people who live this kind of lifestyle and actually do a lot of ministry, he tells them in Matthew chapter 7, I never knew you. You claim to be mine, but I have no idea who you are. Beloved, we who profess Christ right here this, this morning, we need, to, we need to wake up maybe and, and ask, look at these truths and inquire, do I really love Christ? Do I love Christ or do I only enjoy the benefits that Christ brings? Or do I love the very person of Jesus Christ? It's all personal here in this section. Mothers, fathers, children, daughters, Christ. Christ, person. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. This is 
the life that's poured out for Jesus because you, lo- you love Jesus and you entrusted your soul to him forever. And you believe the promise of eternal life. In other words, here's what he's saying. I think he's saying, listen, think bigger, think bigger. We were just singing songs that reminded us that Jesus lives outside of time, all of time in his hand. Didn't we just sing this? All of time in his hand. We think that it's just now. That's how I often operate. I make decisions based on how it's going to affect myself, Marina, and my children today. What about next month? What about this next year or maybe two years max? That's what I'm tempted. That's how I'm tempted, right, to think when I make certain decisions. Just, just right now, what's the, what's the payoff? And, and Jesus here, is, he's telling his disciples, listen, what I'm telling you right now, it's, it might hurt. You may be isolated. You may be rejected, but think long-term. Don't think about two years, 30 years. Don't even think about 50 years. Think about 20 million years. We're opposed to thinking of million years when it comes back right before creation. Like we know the earth is young earth, right? 6,000 years or so old. So when it comes to before millions of years, scratch that, forget it, nonsense. Think in terms of millions of years ahead, forward, future, billions of years. Why? Because we're talking about eternity. And Jesus says your eternity is at stake here. Think about what it will cost you then. Think about how we will affect your life then, not just right now. We are prisoners of the moment so often. Jesus says, think about that. Will you be found with Christ? Will you be enjoying your ultimate life then? Will you find your life then? How do you find your life in Christ then? Well, if you are living your life right now for his sake, again and again, this this uh, emphasis on doing things, living your life for Jesus Christ. Verse 18 of chapter 10, for my sake. Verse 22, because of my name. Verse 37, more than me, more than me. 38, follow after me. Verse 39, for my sake. I mean, do I think we get the point. And, and friends, what it looks for you practically might differ from what it looks for the person sitting next to you. But the priority of Christ will be seen in our commitments, it will be seen in our choices, it will be seen in our attitudes and our behaviors. And inevitably, friends, following Christ will result in some form of suffering. This is what Jesus is saying. You will suffer. You will have to give up some things in this life. And that is okay in light of what's to come. It will involve some form of suffering. You might not get persecuted to death, but you will be persecuted. Take heart, however, if you love Christ, he says you will gain, you will find, you will be fulfilled in life eternally. So a true disciple chooses Jesus over every other single relationship, over every single comfort, and even over life itself. They love Christ above everyone and deny, him, deny everything for him because they don't live in the moment. 
they live realizing that all of time is in his hands. And what he declares is the truth. This time here is going to be glorious if this time here is spent loving Christ. Loving Christ. Finally, I want us to look at the third exhortation here. And that is risk all for Christ in view of the pledge of his reward. If you look with me at verse 40, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Beloved, as Jesus brings and concludes his address here to his disciples, he wants to not only assure the 12 of their eternal life, but of the fact that they will have great compensation. Great compensation. Here's what he wants them to understand. Friend, you will never be asked to lose anything in this life that God won't graciously compensate you for and reward you in the future. And we, we oftentimes don't think this way. I don't think this way. Right? When I surrender something, when I don't pursue something, I think like, ah, man, Lord, why, why, why don't you want me to get this? Now he says, you think future Eternal perspective. Persecution is, is, is a real consequence of living for Jesus Christ. However, so is God's reward. Persecution is true, boom, yes. So is God's reward. How many of you know the statement, finders, keepers? What's the other phrase? Losers, weepers. And I think what Jesus is saying here is like, let me teach you the opposite. The opposite is actually true. Losers are finders, keepers, weepers. Losers, finders, keepers, weepers. You keep it, you lose it. You lose it, you find it. And I'm gonna reward you greatly. You risk all for Christ and you will be rewarded abundantly. It was Jim Elliot who famously said, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. At the very end here, Jesus, he gets very broad and addresses not only the 12, but also those who receive Christ and his messengers. When you risk all for Christ as his disciple, you will be rewarded. Jesus assures his disciples that some will welcome them. He's just been telling them for the good portion of this chapter, you will be rejected Right? You will be persecuted. You will be put to death, some of you, even from your own family members. But here he assures them and he says, some will actually receive you. And when they receive you, they will receive me. And they will receive you because they receive me. And when they receive you, they will receive the father who sent me. Just as a side note here, listen. You can't believe in God without believing in Jesus. That's what this verse says. You cannot claim to believe in God if Jesus is not part of this claim. Because God sends his son and he wants us to worship him, his son. That's why we talk about Jesus a lot here, worshiping Jesus, making much of Jesus. And it's almost like somebody may think, well, we're not making so much of God, right? Of, of the father. Why are we making such a big deal about Jesus? Well, because 
The father does. That's why. The father makes a big deal about Jesus. He said, I send him. I am well pleased in my son earlier. You listen to him. So don't ever go around claiming that you believe in God if Jesus is not your sole object of worship. This is the God we know and we believe in and affirm. Every Christian who brings the gospel to unbelievers brings Christ to them. That's what this passage teaches. And when they are received, Christ is received because we are his ambassadors. Some people will risk everything when they welcome Christ, but they will be rewarded. So he's talking about their own reward. He's talking about the reward of those who receive them into their homes. In the Old Testament, when a prophet was faithful to God, he, he received a reward from God. Well, the, the people who accepted the prophet and his message, they accepted the will of God and those who provided for the prophets, they were rewarded like the prophet. Similarly, to receive a righteous person or a disciple of Christ for Christ's sake would mean sharing in that reward. And with this Jesus here, he encourages the 12 that you will not be shortchanged. He pledges that they will be rewarded. And not only that, notice that not even the smallest of sacrifices for those who serve Christ and his messengers will be rewarded. Not even the smallest. In other words, when he says this, and whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones a cup of water to drink, this gesture here is a must of hospitality. If you're gonna open the door and welcome someone in, it was common to just offer them a glass of water, a cup of water. And Jesus says, listen, if somebody opens the door to you and bring you in, you will get the reward. But they will get the reward for doing what is really required. Nothing will be missed in God's economy. Nothing. Church, the blessings of the future kingdom will offset the sacrifices made here in this life. In some cases, the loss, the losing, right, the, the loss of parents and children, I mean, this is very painful. I can only imagine what it feels like. The persecution experienced is very painful. The hostility because of your attachment to Jesus is painful. But all of that pain will be offset in the coming kingdom. That's why you can't live here and now only. You got to live with eternity in sight. A disciple of Christ, Jesus says, will be compensated. And he doesn't say what compensation they will receive. Obviously, knowing Christ is a great reward. Being saved and rescued from this wretched misery of sin is a great reward. But I think in in this particular passage, he is talking about additional rewards for service. You go out for Christ, you will be rewarded. Those who receive you will be rewarded, not only with salvation, but for serving the gospel ministers. Oh, that reward is great. Risk all for Christ in view of the pledge of his reward. So the call here is to love Christ above everyone in view of his love for you, is to 
deny everything for Christ in view of this big picture, in view of eternity, and risk all for Christ in view of the coming rewards. Friends, how do we nurture this kind of love and commitment to keep Christ first? As I already mentioned, I don't think there's a greater motivation than the gospel. Jesus gave himself up for us. This, in turn, is the ultimate motivation to give Jesus absolute primacy in our lives. There's no greater reward. I think with parents, right, sometimes I remember growing up as a kid, dumb kid, still that to some extent, uh, and just reflecting on your parents and what they do to you, and you're like, why would I love them? Right? They don't they didn't necessarily buy me anything were so impressive, you know, they didn't give me much stuff, you know, and so I'm like, why and then as you grow older, right, you're a teenager and you're reflecting differently, and then as you hit your twenties, you all of a sudden realize the parents' love for you. The stuff you don't understand as an eight year old or a nine year old. You just can't comprehend that. But you understand that they loved you and you want to love them back almost repay like that is the ultimate and the only motivation they, they can't do anything for you now i mean you you buy them stuff but they love you and that is the greatest motivation to love them I, I, it works exactly the same way when you are just when you dive into the gospel And when you remind yourself of the love of God, that's why Paul always prayed, and most of his prayers is just so that you can understand him. I just pray so that you can understand, so that you can think properly, so that you can understand his love. And when you do that, oh, you will love. You will sacrifice. You will appreciate the Lord. Mark chapter 10, there's a passage here um, where Peter right after the rich young ruler. And he has, Jesus has a conversation with the rich young ruler and he says, one thing you miss, go sell and give it all up and then come back and follow me. And he's, he felt sad and left. And so maybe Peter is looking at him. Well, he's sad, but he has all this wealth. We're happy, but we have no wealth. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, behold, we have left everything and followed you. He didn't even ask him a question. He's just statement. Behold. <laughs> and, and, and Jesus doesn't even give him an option to answer or to ask the question. He says, truly I say to you, there's not one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. The exchange makes sense in light of eternity, in light of who Jesus is. Whatever is given up for Jesus is replaced in greatest measure. If the cost is great, so will the reward. Following Jesus is not always easy, friends, but it is so worth it. He is the supreme. And with that, he sends out his disciples.
Father, we thank you for this reminder that you love your son. You sent your son so that he can demonstrate your love for us. And the call now as those who have been called into your kingdom is to give up all for his mission, give up all for his sake, for his name. Regardless of what that all is, all is all. Oh, Father, convince us of this truth. Many of us are battling this very thought right now as we sit here and as we're thinking about what that means for us. Let us be convinced that Jesus is Lord, he is King, he is our Savior, and he is worthy of our utmost devotion and love and affection. Father, help us to make decisions, practical decisions, that will testify to the fact that we understand this truth. Lead us in your way, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.